Hey everybody, it's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty, and my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi! What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh my gosh, we answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again, break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you haven't listened to the show before, it is uh, that title there, Matt. Conversations with Matt Dwyer, kind of sums it all up. It's a conversation I have with people. It's freeformed, and this episode is a bit more freeformed than usual because it was the final um, interview of this road trip series that we took. You go to the website, my website, themattdwyer.com. And check out all the videos and footage and stuff of 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 that. Um, of there's vid- videos, blogs, photos, and uh, and this was and so this was uh, Shane Bugby uh, who invited us up to a story and uh, joined in on this conversation as did my uh, girlfriend and fiance uh, Kelly Rose. Uh, but the main focus of this uh, conversation was a uh, incredible writer, Lara Messner Smith Glavin. My I, my tongue got tied there, so forgive me. My my I, my, I, my jaw locked up. But uh, uh, she's an incredible. I really uh, enjoy her perspective and her view on the world, and her take on art. And I don't know. There's a lot of uh, a lot of mind expanding. At least for my simple mind, a lot of mind expanding things happen. Um, and and you can uh, check out more of her work at uh, queenofpirates.net. Check that out. Go to themattdwyer.com. See the photos. They'll be up a little late, possibly, because we've had a lot of uh, technical problems, and then life, you know, then life stuff happens, and it's a little hard to get, uh, you know, uh, we had, uh, you, you know, life bullshit happens, and you can't, you, you get distracted by your creative world because you have to deal with reality, which is something I'm not a fan of. But like, uh, one of our dogs got, like, incredibly sick last week, and it just, has thrown everything off but and you know you just don't you don't realize how i mean i think people who don't have pets don't realize how you know how they truly do become like a member of your family like my little dog charlie uh was very very sick and spent the night in the doggy hospital and i had to make doggy prayers to the doggy god and i'm a doggy atheist but you know in times of uh, whoa, you 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 bow down to anything to make the doggy feel better, and maybe the, maybe the doggy got listened because Charlie's much better. But man, I would have been I would have been really uh, uh, upset there if I lost my dog. I probably I can make myself cry thinking about losing my dog, and I'm not talking. I'm I'm using the word losing is in death. Um, it's but you know that guy's been with me for five years. He's my he's one of my best friends. I've shared a bed with him longer than I've shared with a bed with any woman on earth. <laughs> now we share the bed with two dogs and my woman. 
and uh, it gets crazy in there, everybody. And that was not in- implying anything. I didn't mean it that way. But um, I don't know. I, I highly suggest if you are a person out there in the world, especially if you live alone, get a pet, get a dog. Changed my life. Charlie, I call him my little monk because he, he just made me more aware of, uh, hey, the world ain't about you, motherfucker. I'm quoting Charlie. He does talk, and he doesn't tell me to go to Queens and kill people in cars make, making out. Son of Sam reference, everybody. Uh, we will get on with this uh, interview with Lara Messersmith-Glavin. Lara Glazer-Smith-Glavin. Uh, she's an incredible woman. And I, I, there's, I have this, I'm like, did I bungle up her name? Because if I did, I'm going to, I'll be really bummed out. Um, and if I offended her, because she's a very spectacular person. Here we go to the conversation. But that's always something that interests me about being a parent, because I'm not a parent, but my neuroses is so high that I'm like, oh my god, like I would be living in fear and like thinking oh my god I'm passing all my crazy on to them mm. and does that change when you have the kid I intentionally waited until I knew that I had mastered some of my crazy <laughs> I, I mean I was 36 years old when my son was born oh wow almost 36 you know and my partner is 12 years older than I am and so we took the time to work that shit out so that we wouldn't pass it on yeah I think that's why it took me so long to get into a house in a healthy relationship because I was like my crazy was quite running rampant right yeah right you know as it does and so yeah I mean certainly you can't get rid of all of it but um what I have found is that I instead put my crazy into my my marriage rather than my child which is unfortunate but that's what's happening right yeah and you said that that you're that your name Lara is a there's an interesting story behind it oh yeah 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 it's a good way to start so um so in the 70s, you know, uh, sex prediction was maybe not quite so acute as it is now. Now they have a blood test, um, which is just new in the last year. I didn't have that with my son. but um, So they used the heartbeat and they used, you know, rhythms and the way that the mother carried the things. And so they were absolutely certain that I was a boy. And so my parents picked out an appropriate name for me. Our last name was Messersmith. And so um, they decided that they'd call me Hans Gustav. <laughs> Which is a Perfect. Uh, Deutsche Name. And um, so I was going to be Hans Gustav Messerschmidt. And my parents were certain that that's who was on the way. And then my mom was eight months pregnant. She was up on the fishing boat. No, no, wait, let me back up. She was six months pregnant. And she was up on the boat in Kodiak. And then uh, she left the boat and she went and visited her mother in Washington and she started having gas pains which is a drag that happens when you're pregnant second trimester and then the gas pains wouldn't go away and she realized she was having contractions and um, she was only uh, 30 weeks pregnant and so they went to the hospital and they tried to stop the birth like rather than trying to speed it up they did everything that they could to try to stop her from having me um, and I went ahead and was born almost 10 weeks early and my mom was in a hospital where she knew no one and my father was fishing out somewhere in Alaska in the water and this was of course you know long long before cell phones or anything like that and so they had this baby that then had to be put in an incubator for many weeks before she could be held or fed or touched or anything because I was like you know three pounds um, and they were frantically then writing letters back and forth to each other. My mom had gotten hold of the harbor master, and the harbor master had radioed the next boat, and the next boat radioed the next boat, and they radioed the next boat, and finally my father says he was the last person in Alaska to find out that he was a dad, and lo and behold, he had a daughter, right? And so Hans Gustav didn't sound like such a good idea. <laughs> Although I gotta say, like there was a time when I was really sad that my name wasn't Hans. Like I think I could rock Hans. Yeah, I was uh, thinking the same thing. Like, what know, a great name for a girl. Be great? It would yeah. be great. It's so much better, you know, than for a boy. Um, but then, so they wrote letters. They wrote letters back and forth. Um, 
and they made lists and it was like they'd send a list and one person would cross some things out and add a couple and then they sent the list back and they'd cross out and add it and, and I was this close to being Crystal. Oh. I know. That was, you? Oh. was gonna be a stripper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then my father was in love with Julie Christie from Dr. Zhivago, like every man and woman in the 60s. And so they decided on Lara. And so I'm named after the character in the Boris Pasternak novel and the movie with Julie Christie and Omar Sharif. Julie Christie's, it's weird because any woman I'm attracted to in film, it's, they're probably, you know, they're all 80 now. So right. <laughs> it's yeah, not I'm a threat to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Julie Christie is still absolutely amazing. She's yeah. Gorgeous. It's, you know, that's interesting because I think you kind of forget that the, in the, even in the 70s where everybody had phones and things were fairly technical, like right. somebody out on a boat is going to not know shit for weeks. And that's kind of got to be maddening, oh, maddening yeah. for your mother. Well, yeah. And I mean, anyone, anyone with family back home, you just didn't know, right? They left and they went fishing and sometimes you heard and sometimes you didn't. And even when I was in high school... You know, and I'd have girlfriends or boyfriends back home or whatever, and they'd be sending me care packages. That mail goes to the cannery. It doesn't go to the boat. And so maybe you get it and maybe you don't. Maybe the tender brings it out to you, and maybe you have to wait for a closure. And so sometimes it would be like a month, you know, before you got something, and then a month before they got it back. And so it was like still kind of a, a Pony Express way of communicating. Is it strange when you were like younger that you're would your father go for extended periods of time and it would just be you and your mother when you were very young or no they started taking me on the boat when I was two wow and you'd go out for yeah I was on the boat with them for like months or how many how long yeah I mean like in those days you know we would work for we would have more like a work week where you'd fish for five days and take a couple days off um, and we also fished for a dedicated cannery at the time and because we were a highliner because um, we caught a lot of fish we would we had a little apartment kind of thing. We shared a duplex with another fishing couple. Um, and so when we did come into the cannery, we could stay on land. We didn't have to sleep on the boat. But um, Is that a pretty, I mean, I have no idea. I've been on my grandfather's boat, <laughs> uh -huh. but it's not like that. Like for, I mean, is that dangerous for a two-year-old child? Oh to my be God. I mean, as a mother of a two-year-old now, I think my parents are fucking crazy. <laughs> like, like, what were they thinking? Seriously, you know, I, I mean, like I get terrified, like walking down the street with my kid and he's not holding my hand tightly enough on the sidewalk, you know, and I'm thinking like they had me on a, on a 42-foot boat in the middle of the ocean, you know. They tell this story of when I was, when I was three years old, um, our boat at the time had a flying bridge, um, which is where, you know, the skipper could be up top and could be driving the boat, but there was no house on top. You were open to the elements. And so my dad was driving up top and we were, um, I think it was at night actually, I don't know. And, and my mom came tearing up the ladder and she says, is Laura with you? And of course my dad's thinking, if she's asking, she's looked everywhere. And so he's thinking, well, she's gone overboard, and we've been traveling, so I'm probably three miles back. I'm totally gone, right? And so they, you know, kill the engine, and they're tearing the boat apart, just absolutely, you know, everything is flying. They're looking in the hold, in the lazarette, they're looking in the engine room, and that's it, I'm gone. And then they hear this little... <laughs> and of course, you know, my parents are shitting themselves, and they're, like, sick to their stomachs, and there was this this um, like hatch um, just right at the very fore of the forecastle, and we called it the trub hole like that's they used to joke that that's where they would put me if I got in trouble and that's where we stored like you know life suits and survival suits things like that and I had crawled in there and latched the door behind me I was hiding in the trub hole I just thought I was like the smartest thing ever right you know like I win I mean hide and seek <laughs> right <laughs> funny <laughs> you know and meanwhile everybody thinks that I'm dead you <laughs> still were smart, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yes, right. So that's, you know, I think that's what it's like being a parent on a boat. I just can't, I can't imagine. Um, there were other kids. There were other kids too. I wasn't the only one, but I was one of the few. On the same boat? No, I mean on boats in general. Uh, in general. How many people were on the boat other than your parents? Um, so we always had a skiff man. And then when I was little, we also had two other deckhands and my mom. Um, and my mom was on deck and she was also the cook. 
Um, and then once I got older, I started working on deck when I was eight, which is another story. Um, and then, and then we would only have one other deck hand, and then the skip man. What would you do on deck? Um, for when I was eight, I was stacking corks, and then when I got older, it was really important to me that the man did the easy job and I did the leads. So when I was like maybe fourteen, I started stacking leads. What made you decide? I mean, that's a very, for a 14-year-old, that's a very strong-willed sort of, or am I nuts? I don't know. I don't, I'll relate myself as a 14-year-old. I hate a lot. <laughs> right. I don't know. I, I think I, something happened. I mean, I was 14 or 15. I think I had a, actually, I remember what happened. Um, there was a, a guy that I had grown up with. He was kind of part of my generation. He was maybe 10 years older than I am, but our parents were like the Highliners and we were the kids. We were like the second generation. And we, you know, we were tight in that way. It was like being cousins or something. And he worked on our boat one summer and he basically told me flat out, he's like, you're a shitty deckhand. <laughs> he's like, you're worthless. Whoa. And he was totally right. I was worthless. Wow. Like I was absolutely cruising on being the skipper's daughter, mm -hmm. you know, and I could go in when I wanted and I could take a break if I needed. And he was like, it's pathetic. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be a good deckhand. Yeah. And so he taught me all kinds of shit. He taught me knots, and um, my dad taught me how to mend gear, and so I was, I got really good at mending seine, and he taught me to hustle and to be strong, and so he only, he only fished with us that one summer, but then after that, I was just like, all right, yeah. whoever else came on the boat, I was just like, you're on corks, I'm on nuts. Nice. I do this. Was it, was it a bit of a, I don't know, I mean, to talk poorly to the skipper's daughter, maybe a little dangerous? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? No? No, I mean, you're on deck, you're on deck. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. right. Cool. So. Now, just as uh, me dealing with, you know, stereotypes, what you think of, like, guys on boats, you know, a lot of salty talk and cussing and whatnot, and I'm thinking for a young a young person, <laughs> you um, might have gotten a little education on some words. Most people may have oh, some yeah. things. I mean, my father is, a, like, a, a poet of filth, really. Like, <laughs> like, he has, like, a real gift, you know. I mean, like, anybody can cuss, but this guy can really turn it into something truly yeah. beautiful. Right? Right. I love like, people like that. Truly <laughs> profound, you yeah. know. And, like, he comes up with, it's not just, like, there's an imagery to it. Yeah. That it never occurred to you to, like, bring that, that forth. Yeah. Like, and you're just like, oh, together. wow. Wow, I can really see that. That's really disgusting. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, he has that real gift. And... And he was he was proud of me for a long time when I was a little kid. You know, he always made a point of saying, "Oh, Lara hears a lot of language, but she never repeats it." You know, but I remember like a time when I was back in Southern Indiana at my grandparents' dinner table. You know, and I was just like, "Please pass those motherfucking potatoes." You know, and like I was so proud that yeah. I had managed to stick it in the sentence in the right spot. You know, right. but um, for the most part, I don't think I picked it up until I was in high school, and by then it was like so yeah. normalized that if you didn't talk that way, it was a problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a hard habit to get rid of. It now, is. I will say. Yeah. And I don't want to jump too ahead. That's okay. Because there are things with the fishing world I want to deal with, but I just can't help but think of how that would have influenced you as a writer, whether you knew it or not, because it's like you almost hear such a freedom of speech or use different uses that a lot of people may not have gotten. There's like a different writer in me that writes about fishing. I did a lot of different kinds of writing before I started writing about, before I started writing for Fisher Poets. Um, and my language is almost completely different. I mean, you can definitely tell that it's coming from the same person, but um, the first time I gave myself permission to write a piece about fishing, because I was terrified, I didn't, I was afraid that I would forget. I was afraid, like there's something that happens when you, when you write, when you pin things down with language it's like the difference between, you know, a butterfly moving through space and something that's pinned down on a card, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are freezing it in time and you're saying it was this way and no other. Yeah. Um, and I was afraid that if I started writing about it that I would rewrite my own memories to the point where I no longer had access to like that kind of limitless impressionistic childhood that I had. Um, and when I was finally given the courage to write about it, the first piece that I did was about cussing. Nice. It was about, like, deck abuse. Yeah. And because I, I had never heard anybody write about that before. I'd never heard anybody say, this is what it's like to be on a fishing boat. This is what oh. people say to you. 
because nowhere else in the world that I've ever seen is it okay to talk to somebody like that. Yeah. You know, and it's completely par for the course. Mm -hmm. Can and you so, expand on talk, talk like that? Like, how do they talk to you? You stupid, dirty motherfucker. Yeah. You fucking worthless piece of shit! You pull your head out of your ass right now! You fucking cretin! You know, I mean, it's like... This, but great. it goes on and on and on. It's like, really, like... That's how directives are issued, you know. Yeah. Like it's, you were afraid there, weren't you? Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's it's not just about the language. It's always about how worthless and stupid you are, right? It's not right. just like fuck yeah. this. It's like you it's like, are lower than lower yeah. than low. What do you think the intent of that is? Um. Well, the intent on my boat is to make sure that it's understood that. If a direction is given, it has to be followed immediately because people's lives are at stake. Mm -hmm. There's a fear that if that authority is not complete, that people, if people are free to think for themselves and make judgments that are counter to what the skipper is asking, that someone's going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. um, that's where it comes from. I don't think it's necessary. No, because I know skippers that aren't like that. Yeah, you know, but um, and they instead you know, rule through respect. Mm -hmm. um, people want to do their bidding. Yeah. Because they're great people, you know, but um, I think it's effective. And I also think that, you know, fishing is a really high emotion, high adrenaline experience, and some people get caught up in that. And they, I think certain personalities are drawn to skipperhood, right? And that gives them kind of free license to vent those things that they haven't figured out how to deal with in their regular lives. Yeah. And so it draws a particular kind of personality and gives them license to do that. You know, I think they want to do that anyway. Yeah. You know, my dad was a drill sergeant in jump school. He was a Green Beret. And so he definitely pulled out some of the tricks that he learned in the Army, you know, and, and found those to be pretty effective, I think. Yeah. I guess, and uh, what I was looking, I don't know if I expressed myself well is what I'm saying, is oh. that uh, uh, the hearing such freedom with words did that sort of influ influence all of your writing oh, and all and the way you approach words uh -huh. that was but i mean i loved everything you said so i was glad that <laughs> we went to, <laughs> no, well, i just i think i was looking that was probably my dumbness no but uh because i mean certain so you're saying was it liberating hearing that kind of language yeah or did it also attract you to words because i think you got a different uh, world of words than most people do, did no. as at, at, at a very young age uh -huh. and i think that I don't know, that could be an inspiring thing, and I mean, I remember the first time I heard someone say cocksucker, and I was like, wow. I'm not really sure what that is, yeah. right. but I love the fucking, I love the sound of it. Yeah, right, I can see that. Um, that's a great question, I haven't ever thought of it in that way. I think what I always heard, I, I think for me, language is more about what's driving the language, and so what I heard was personalities can erupt you know I heard that there are ways of expressing I heard that it's okay to express these kinds of passions that are not allowed in any other kind of venue right um, and that there are times when it's all right to to like to explode mm -hmm. and I think that that like looking back now informs a lot of the way that I do performance sometimes you know, and actually, I can think of other examples in my life. The things that have been the most inspiring for me, I can think of a science teacher who, in the like early 80s, got so worked up over the fact that no one was talking about climate change that he just like drove himself into a frenzy and he picked up a desk and threw it across the room and just like stormed out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, it's okay to care. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Like people care about stuff, yeah. and like that, like that kind of freedom to to explode has been really um, informative to me. I think it's really inspiring to me. So while you know I, I didn't like being screamed at, I don't think I took a liberation from the language itself. I think I took the emotion that was behind it. You know, mm -hmm. and it also taught me that people can be really, really awful to each other, mm -hmm. and that there's a certain kind of power structure that it makes that okay, for better or for worse. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. And I think a lot of us are told not to show those emotions, right, not totally. to. I mean, I was my entire life told, you know, as a child, I mean, not as a 40 year old. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe but, still, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, I think, but I mean, that's you do get told that. I think you tell yourself a lot of, you know, those 
things are still clicking in your head a lot of times. Right. And to sort of be giving emotional freedom is, uh, I think, in a very emotionally repressed society, is a very interesting mm -hmm. thing to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it tied into everything that I feel like I learned about the world through Alaska, which is that there's a wildness that we carry. And it's like, it was, it was so much a part of my assumptions about the way people are and the way that the world is and the way that like, I mean, it fed into everything. It, like, I assumed that everybody wanted something dark. I assumed that everybody had a kink. I assumed that everybody had like this secret passion that they really wanted to follow. I assumed that everybody had like this anger that they didn't know how to let out. And as I have gotten older and have discovered that there are people that don't have any of those assumptions, and it's taken me a really long time to accept that because it's like, what? Aren't we all right on the cusp of just total fucking explosion all the time? Right? <laughs> you know? Like, I think we are. I and feel like we are. I feel like, like we are. And yeah. if we're not, like, have you just pressed it so far down that you don't even know how yeah, to find well, it? Yeah. Because I was raised right. to let it be right on the surface. Right. You know, and I've always assumed that to be true about people. And do you think that's uh, healthy? That sounded like I was judging, and I didn't no, mean it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did, I didn't mean it to seem like, uh, oh, and do you? Oh, and you that think that's okay? healthy, do you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's honest. Right. Because yeah. I think the flip of what you were saying, what you were saying about people holding down, is like, it's why people drive a car into a mall. Right. You know? Yes. It's like right. it boils and they pop. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I just, I just assume that, I assume that everyone carries that darkness in them. You know, and you know, and that it's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. Like it's a, I guess yes, it's a healthy thing. Um, but maybe, maybe not everybody knows how to access that. Yeah, I think very few people go. Oh, I got this blood. Me, most to <laughs> go. Oh fuck, I'm ashamed. You know. Yeah. Guess, and then there's others to, yeah. who you know turned it into art. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> sure. But I mean, it's like right. there's been times where I wrote something I was like oops that slipped out and I was like no that should slip out yeah, you know? it should. Absolutely. Yeah. you mentioned your science teacher I had a band director who was the same way but almost on a weekly basis he would oh, lose wow. his fucking shit and <laughs> he throw his yeah, yeah throw his baton across the room and I just remember everyone would get so upset about it even me we'd all be like oh my god what is wrong with that guy and now I love the guy we're friends on Facebook and I'm like oh yeah he fucking cares about shit, man. Yeah. That's why. That's interesting. It never occurred to me. I think some people can use that kind of like habitual explosion as a yeah. crutch too. You oh know? yeah, but absolutely. I think that, you know, I think that that can become just as suppressive as not oh, yeah. expressing it at all. You know, I, and or there's like a codependence that can develop there too. But I think that like if it's authentic, it's something else. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's I mean, like. Oh, go ahead. oh, I was just, it's like what they would say about Peter Sellers, genius is an excuse for awful behavior. And it's like, you know, because he was so brilliant, he could be a horrible person. It's like, that's weak. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can be brilliant and be a nice guy. Yeah. Right. But, and you were talking about Alaska, you brought up Alaska in our conversation and you were talking about it earlier. And I don't think people, you were saying it's like the Wild West. It's like a, or is it still that wild? Well, there's something else that happens. I mean, there. So there's the human component that is kind of like the Wild West. It has its own different kind of set of rules. It's got its own mores. It has its has a really different kind of gender division. It also, uh, the fishing community is a temporary community, right? And so they come together during seasons. It's not fixed, so people don't have to be accountable to each other day in and day out, right? And that produces a different kind of morality as well. But I think, for me anyway, the most powerful and significant aspect of it, besides the social component, is that there's something in Alaska that is wild in a totally different way. Like, I've, I've been a lot of different places, and I haven't... Every place that I've been in the world, including really, like, like the epitome of like you know the Sahara Desert or like places in China I mean places that you think of as being really remote and wild it, even there you feel the tread of human history somehow like you can feel people there you feel like you're entering into some kind of human narrative and in Alaska I don't have that feeling at all it's like you could give a shit that people are there and that's a very different experience like feeling 
that kind of wildness that's utterly indifferent to your presence and may or may not even notice that you're there. That kind of feeling, I think people develop almost like a subservient love for it. You know, it's like you become, it masters you completely. You know, if you kind of give in to that feeling and you're, you are comfortable being in a place that is that completely not about you, um, then it sort of owns you in this way. And that makes some people really, really uncomfortable and they leave immediately. But to me, I feel like there's like a, there's a psychological piece to being in a place that feels like that, that makes people act and be a certain way, or it selects a certain kind of personality. No, that's really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it's it's kind of intense. I think like it it's a heavy intense. concept. It is intense. I used to lie on my bunk when I was a little kid, like you know, eight years old, and I could feel the water slap at the side of my head, and you know, like basically my head was right against the hull, like right against the water line, mm -hmm. and I could feel the water all the way down, and I could feel the water all the way around me, and I would have complete, like infinity freakouts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like suddenly being really aware of like yeah the abyss, I guess, you know, and in like this very physical way. It wasn't like this existential crisis. It was like really getting a sense of mm -hmm. how big and how vast things are. Yeah. Um, and I would just completely lose my mind and there's like no human way to comfort yourself out of that. You mm -hmm. just have to kind of sit with it. Totally. You know, and I feel like the I feel like that place does that to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's making me think, it, like, it's a very, uh, because you said existential, but it seems like there's a weird spiritual sort of awareness that comes with realizing this infinite, you know? Maybe so. I mean, as a, as a child, too, that's a heavy way to be thinking as a kid at eight. I guess so, yeah. We're going to take a break from the conversation for one quick moment. I just want to ask for your help. If you can go to the Feral Audio page and go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page and uh, click on the Amazon link and maybe put that in your toolbar or something so anytime you buy something on Amazon, we get a kickback of that money a little bit and it helps support Feral Audio and my podcast. There's no advertising on my show, so it's a great way to support. Also, if you can donate some money, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, we always are in need of equipment or... Uh, new microphones and stuff so that would be grateful also go to the mattdwyer.com you can see some photos of this uh episode up there it might be, take, be a couple days after this airs but um there's uh, photos from all my podcasts uh and road trips and stuff so check out the mattdwyer.com back to the conversation <laughs> i never attached a spirituality to it but it definitely gave me a pretty clear sense of what it means to be awestruck yeah i know it just it's sort of like i can't really even describe what i was thinking but it was sort of like a very buddhist zen sort of like <laughs> you know you're nothing but yet you're a yeah. part of this there was strength. a lot of fear in it too though you yeah know, i was afraid i was afraid of that feeling were you would you were you able to express that to your like hey mom i felt an infiniteness and a random <laughs> i have a really clear memory of a panic attack that i had when i was six about that and I remember, like, just saying over and over and over again, like, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And I remember my dad getting really fucking angry. Just like, you know, slap, slap, like, snap out of it kind of thing. Yeah. Like, kids don't talk like this. <laughs> like, shut up! <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. In any way, do you, do you carry that with you still? Or is it there some sort of resolution with that? If that's possible. Yeah, I, now I rely on it. How so? That feeling is like my safety comfort, net. Comfort. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that now. Like I, like, I need to remember that that's there. That helps me keep everything in perspective. Yeah. Does that also help you create? Hmm. Um, I think it helps me have courage, maybe. You know, and I think that courage is necessary for if you're doing some good creation. That's right. You know, for a long time I got away with just being, I've got a, a natural way with words, you know, some people are good with languages, I'm good with languages. It's easy for me to put words together in a way that makes people who aren't thinking about it go, ooh, that sounds cool. But I wasn't saying anything, you know, and it 
took me a really long time to get to a point where I had the courage to actually force myself to think about what I meant and to actually put meaning into my creation. And that's when things started to become important, I guess. That's when I started thinking of what it meant to be a writer, right? Is to, to match, to, to push yourself to go beyond the, the form into something bigger. Was there a, any, what, how old were you when that, that sort of realization started coming? Honestly, it's been pretty recently. I've been writing my whole life, but I wasn't writing anything worth reading. You know, I was practicing form. Um, it's been maybe the last six or seven, well, maybe eight years. I went to China, and I did a lot of writing in China, and that's where I realized that I was just doing a lot of description and that I needed to sit back and think about what I was really talking about. Um, and also started being really, just in a very practical way, started committing to like weekly critique groups and things like that, like actively working with people who would say, this is bullshit, what are you talking about? You know, and so really committing to the practice of, of, of writing in a much more meaningful fashion, you know, like using an audience to tell you this is working, this doesn't, this is empty, this is only for you, this is a much wider thing, this is universal, this is bullshit, you know. Um, yeah, I'd say I'm still, I'm still getting there, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's part of, I think that process goes until you say goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. But I right. felt like, with me personally, anytime there were shifts, in in that sort of awareness or you know or some sort of step in a different direction it came with getting older mm -hmm. and also getting kicked in the teeth by life a little bit yeah. where you're like oh i gotta regroup yeah, right. <laughs> i've been doing this wrong or whatever right, right. and did you feel any of that i think that's i think that's part of it i think too i mean when i was in my 20s i was working in film and i i made some work then that i think was good because i was relying on a much more subliminal thing I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm gonna put this shit together, and when I watch it, I cry, and I don't know what I'm doing, right? And I think that's one kind of art, you know, that kind of like automatic, reactionary, subconscious thing. And I and I don't want to like underscore the importance of that kind of creation, but I think that it's not a mature kind of creation. Mm -hmm. I think it's an intuitive kind of creation that we go through, and it's important to play with, right? Um, but it's not until recently when I, I guess as an active part of like getting over a lot of my own shit realizing that I wanted rather than to be directed by these different influences in my life I wanted to start to use them you know to be in control of them if you will and to visit them differently um, that's when I started thinking of it in a different way you know and also too it's it was just as simple as someone that I admire very much, Mo Bowster, and I think, he, I know you know her, and, and you may. She's um, a, a, a started in the zine movement, really great yeah. storyteller, performance, uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say performance artist, but Kinda. performer, yeah. poet, Yeah. performance artist always has some sort of uh, You're right. yeah, yeah. thing like she's going to have a... Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, she's people a, don't fully always yeah. understand the art yeah. form of performance. Right, right. But she's, she's great. She's a storyteller in the true sense. Like she doesn't write things down. She gets up in front of an audience, and it's like the whole world is just swimming around her, and she just picks bits and pieces of it, and it just comes to her as she goes, and she weaves it together, feeling the energy in the room, and then she like delivers us all together into this net, and it's magic. And I can't do that. I don't do that. Um, but she and I are good friends, and she we knew each other in Kodiak, and actually her name is Lara. Also, her name is Lara Lou. I'm Lara Lee. We're destined to be friends, right? Um, and she was the one who was kind of like, why don't you write your shit? And I was like, because I'm scared, you know, because I don't want to forget it. And she was like, and so, and so I did. You know, sometimes it just takes that little nudge. And there's also a sense of duty. I, when I was younger, the one of the last summers that I was in Alaska, I made a documentary about it, like an impressionistic documentary about Alaska. Um, and I was talking to this old um, Inuit man who lived on Spruce Island. His name was Ed Opheim, and he made the most beautiful handmade boats and thingies. 
And he was like, you have to tell the story. You have to tell the story because you are the youngest person who remembers the way that it used to be. You have to tell it. And that felt like such a charge, you know, and I, I definitely didn't have the strength to carry that then. Um, and so I made this film and I kind of let that go out into the world and do its thing and then I sort of dropped it. Um, and so his mind was in the back, or his, his voice was in the back of my mind when I came back to writing and when I decided to start telling the story again. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm being caught up in this in my own brain, cause, but like when you said like you used to create intuitively, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of people start that way, and then you said, you, uh, I don't know, I'm going to have to pair it. Should be, it's not mature. Yes. Which so I took offense to. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I don't know if I took offense to it yet. I'm listening, That's but right. I'm definitely thinking. But then is there, a, like, is the... Because uh, I know definitely when I first started writing, it was just like, look, get it out, get it out. Right. And then it's like, and I think a lot of people think they have to write that way because they hear, you know, I, I probably myths I will say about Kerouac where you say, oh, he typed it all out on one thing. And it's yeah, like, right. he didn't type it out on that one thing. And then it was like, and here's the book. Yeah. Like, there's no fucking way. Right. <laughs> right. But I think people, and maybe like immature creators or naive, think that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like, if there was, is that what you were doing? And then you're like, I'm going to really sit and think. Because I, I get confused with, and maybe it's different ways yeah. of creating for each individual. I don't know. I've heard, you know, old chestnuts about two writers, and I'm sure it's totally apocryphal and not either of them, you know, Hemingway versus Faulkner or whoever it was. One saying, like, you have to write in the flow as if you were drunk, and as soon as you hit dry, then you've got to stop. And Hemingway says, no, as soon as you hit the flow, you have to stop. Every word should be like pulling teeth. You know, I mean, there, there are those two different schools of thought, and I don't think either is correct. I, I, think that, I think that the impulse, I think the impulse is always intuitive. I think the impulse is always subliminal and subconscious. And, you know, I, I teach writing, and when I tell my students, I say this whole idea of writing as expression is bullshit. Writing is to discover what you think. You are not there to have an idea and then use writing to wrap words around it so other people can hear it. That's not what happens. What happens is you feel a pull and you write to discover where it is, to discover what it is, right? But after that, after that initial intuitive impulse, then for me anyway, there's a responsibility of like thinking about it more, right? What are you really doing? Because I've written things, you know, that I thought were pure impulse, pure intuition, they felt right to me, they felt meaningful, and they have nothing for anyone else. And that doesn't mean it's a bad piece, it just means it's not a public piece, right? It means that I wrote that for myself, it's basically a diary entry. So you're talking about being immature as far as, um, I guess, writing, you're talking about you need to flush it out so it can be consumed by more than just yourself, whereas like a painting or sculpture, you know, as base as I can be, as childlike as I can be, is, is where the beauty is for me, or the, mm -hmm. you know, it's where things, the magic happens, I mm -hmm. should say, versus um, trying to be mature about things. <laughs> this word's going to come back and bite me, isn't it? Well, no, I mean, for no, sculpture, no, 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 it's not, but, but I get what you're saying, yeah. for writing, for, there's, it's a different um, craft. Than necessarily something. It's not abstract. Yeah, I mean, I guess it can be. It can be, but, but, it's, but I think you, it is. You're, you're talking about you. You're. This is something that's not open to interpretation. Your writing isn't always open to interpretation. You want it. Right. You want it to be consumed, and you want right. people to get what you're saying. Right. I mean, I, that's what I think. What you're trying, maybe, or what you are saying. That's at least how I'm taking what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, and I'll get back to that. I think part of it is that there's a. I think that for myself. I had to learn to take responsibility for what the work was actually about. That relying on this impulse and this intuition often affords one the privilege or luxury of not examining the real source of that. It allows you just to sort of skate around the shape, to play with the shape of that idea, but not figure out what the core really is or what the origin of it is. And I feel like if you can find that origin without killing it, you know, you don't want to stick a knife through it and like hand it up to your audience like that, right? That kills it. But I think that for me, it's more powerful if I know deep down what I'm really talking about. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that 
writing is always digging deeper and it's like you have a draft and it's like every time i'm like i'm i'm done it's like oh no fuck like i'm nowhere near like i'm like and i that's also my ego going you're fucking good but then (laughs) it's like then somebody or something goes oh you're not you gotta fucking work right (laughs) it's work it's work it's really work and it's also about loss right because we produce those words and those sentences and then we grieve having to cut them when we realize that they were there only to inflate the ego, only to like add frill to our memory, and they're not there to dig deeper, you know. And like the goal should be to move us deeper. Have you, I'm, I'm assuming you may know, and I'm gonna might butcher her last name, Lydia Yukovich, who's a Port, Portland writer. Do you know who I'm speaking of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but we're not friends. I don't know them. Oh, I just, I just, I've recently read her one of her memoirs, and mm-hmm. it was one of those things where I was like, oh, you could, you know, it was like you could go so much deeper yeah and it was like a great discovery reading somebody and going oh there's here's someone who really just cuts it open goes here it is right, right. <laughs> yeah i yeah I, I think memoir in particular lends itself to that you know and, and people crave memoir for different reasons sometimes people really just do want to hear the story you know some people love elizabeth gilbert for example like eat pray love like fucking kill me like i hate that i i actually had someone in a critique group say i wish that i wish you wrote more like elizabeth gilbert and no. i was like i am done that's when okay. you buy a I'm pair done. of steel-toed yeah. boots <laughs> yeah exactly um so i know that some people are just looking for the story because it's escapist right they just they want to be able to live a different life they want to be able to live somebody else's life for 200 pages right but i'm much more interested in the kind of memoir that looks at what is universal about the human experience and what's terrifying and what's exciting and what's scary about it mm-hmm. and says, okay, and this also happens, and what does that mean? You know, because I feel like that's where that's where the heart really resides. You know? Yeah. That's when you feel like you've connected with somebody else. I know Lydia was always, uh, just from what I've read, I've never met her myself, but that she was very opposed to writing memoirs, and I think until she did, she thought it was almost a weak form of expression. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I've had people tell me that they think that creative nonfiction in general is bullshit um, because they think that it ties you to some notion of the truth and that that can be used as a crutch to avoid talking about a deeper theme, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think so. I think, I mean, and you know, there's a difference between like the truth and the story, right? And certainly when I write, I conflate characters and I, you know, change things to match like the ultimate point that I'm getting at. And I don't tell every single thing that happened in that conversation because it doesn't matter, right? I mean, like, it's always going to be fictionalized to a certain extent. Um, But I think that there's something, there's an interesting there's an interesting exercise to trying to stick to your own experience to see where that takes you. I think that fiction is a wonderful, beautiful way of exploring the world, but it it's it does a different thing. You know, it asks you to do a different thing. Mm-hmm. I'm writing a novel right now for it's a middle grade novel. It's a it's a myth, and. It's not like you can make anything happen because you can't, right? Like it has its own logic and the characters want to do their own things and you discover that through the process also. Mm-hmm. But with memoir, you're you're trying to crack open your own life and figure out what it meant, you know. Uh, one of the guys I interviewed, Poe Ballantyne, said that, I, I forget, I, I asked him something about teaching writing. If he was taught... And he said, yeah, my first day of teaching writing, and I'm surely going to paraphrase and not articulate it as well as Poe. He said, my first day of class, I would tell everybody, quit the class, go out and live a goddamn life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, go out and experience things. You're not really going to learn writing by sitting in a room. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're, I mean, I'm just saying you had a rich fucking life from day one, it sounds like. (laughs) But I mean, I'm curious what you think of that. Because I don't think, never mind. What do you think of that? So I teach developmental writing. Mm -hmm. That means that my students are people who want to go to college, but their test scores place them somewhere between sixth grade and ninth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of these are high school graduates. I'd say that maybe half of them are recent high school graduates. They're 19, 20 years old. The rest of them are, are in their 20s and 30s. And then I also have a couple who are in their 60s 
who have been working a trade their whole life and have gotten laid off and now have to go back to school to get reskilled. Mm -hmm. So these are people who have had lives. Um, most of my students are coming from very high-risk backgrounds, so they're either just out of prison, just out of the military with traumatic brain injury and PTSD, or just out of some kind of totally fucked up personal relationship, a marriage, an abusive boyfriend, whatever, usually single mothers, you know, that have like five kids, many of them are houseless, right? Like, these people have plenty of stories. My job is to get them to understand that those stories are worth sharing, and that that's a valuable form of experience, and that there are people that will listen, and that there's something to be gained by taking those stories and turning them into a narrative that they can control. You know, it's like, look what happens. Read these other people, read these other stories. Notice that we are all part of this flow. Notice that this is something that can help us make sense of our lives. This is something that can give us power, right? And so, like, when I teach, I'm not teaching them, like, you know, this is what makes dialogue really snap. You know, what I'm teaching them is, first of all, this is a sentence. This is what a verb is, you know. This is where the period goes. And then also, your life has value. And all of that time that you just spent in rehab where you felt like a piece of shit, and that guy that's been kicking you around for the last three years, like, now you get to take that back. And there are people that are going to listen to you. And you're going to see that there are a lot of other people that are having these experiences, and they're doing wonderful things in the world. And this is your ticket in, right? This is how you get into school. This is how you learn to, you know, this is how you get your mind free. That's heavy again. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, but that also while we're you were saying that, and it is what Shane was talking to about you earlier of just like you know, there's the Fisher poets. It's like why is there not the plumber poets and the, yeah. you know, it just seems like uh, our society in a whole, like our school systems and blah blah blah, really put a lack of importance on being creative and you know and I from a blue collar too it's like you know if, if I you know if we say oh we want to go I want to go do theater or I want to go paint someone's like well then you're a faggot <laughs> it's like that's the world we come from totally. yeah. also I was doing a book on um, school shooters for some time I've had a, mm -hmm. I've lost the whole manuscript but I was doing a lot of research and I found that a lot of people blame um pharmaceuticals but I found that there's a direct correlation between art programs being cut and the uh, that's interesting school shooting going you know like uh, growing in popularity mm -hmm. <laughs> no I mean I, I would yeah. I, how can you not think that not giving people an outlet t to express their pain and frustration getting rid of that how could you think that's a positive for society right. yeah well, I mean, our education system absolutely reflects the values of, of the system that we're asked to participate in, right? You know, I mean, we're asked to sit in rows and to face an authority figure. We're asked to respond to bells, right? Like, all of it was designed initially to make us better factory workers at a certain point in time. Right. You know, we all have to pass Algebra 2 because we were involved in a space race with Russia. Not that any of us will ever use Algebra 2. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, but they were trying to create engineers. And so, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of digging to find the agenda behind these different pieces of what are called the hidden curriculum inside our education system. Yeah. Well, the, and, and also, they make everyone learn at the same speed. So anyone who's fast, maybe a little smarter, has to slow down. Yeah. Anyone who's slow has to speed up, and we all have to communicate the same way. And that's where art, art programs really let people move as fast as they could or, or, mm -hmm. or communicate the way they felt comfortable communicating. Right. Well, and that's um, all been taken away where, you know. Not to mention learning styles and different kinds of intelligence. And I mean, Chomsky went to a special school his whole life where they didn't grade. Right. Again, it was like, oh, he's good at this. Like, let's help. Like, right. let's encourage let's this. And then when right. he first started getting grades, he was like, what? This is a, like, what is this? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great question. You know, what is it? And what's it for? And then, yeah, and thus probably, I mean, it's, you say that's a great question. It's like, yeah, and then he led a life of great questions. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I mean, yeah. in some way, but it's, it is. And, like, I remember feeling that frustration in school of, like, like, I don't know, I just had a different way of learning things. And I didn't want to 
I felt always felt uncomfortable at school. I hated it. Yeah, I hated high school too, mm-hmm. in particular. I, you know, I, there was that science teacher that I mentioned. He was great, um, and I learned how to type really fast, and that ended up being useful. And everything else is a fucking waste of my time. Yeah. I dropped out at sixteen. Did you? Went back when I went to jail. It was like to go back to school and make it look good for the judge. But yeah, yeah school was always useless to me. It was just a disciplinary thing. Yeah, you know, it's constant. It was awful. Like, but, but I've always had a quest for knowledge, though. Unlike a lot of kids at school, maybe. So I just went out and would steal magazines from, or hang out at the library, or, or mm-hmm. get into doing what I'm doing, like zines and asking, uh, interviewing folks. Right. But I found interest in was, you know, to learn, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the last, I mean, the, the writing courses that I teach, it's supposed to be academic writing, right? It's not creative writing. I'm trying to mm-hmm. teach them how to write an essay for college right. because they're going to have to. It's like a big hoop that they have to jump through and try to show them, like, that there is power inside that form, even though there are restrictions. And the last one that we do is, is looking at the purpose of education in a really critical way. And we read this one thing by John Holt, who was a major kind of education rethinker in the 60s, and it's called School is Bad for Children. And it's all about the ways in which, like, the structures of elementary schools dampened curiosity and created, like, cheating clock watchers, basically. Um, And then we read another piece by Earl Shores called um, On the Uses of a Liberal Education as a Weapon in the Hands of the Restless Poor. And it's this great thing where this guy, he thought he was doing a piece on poverty and he went and interviewed this woman in prison. She um, was a lifer and she was HIV positive and he was asking her, so how do you make people not be poor anymore? And she was like, you take them to museums. <laughs> you take them to art galleries. Right. And you give them a moral alternative. Yeah. And he was just like, totally condescending. He was just like, what, and then they won't be poor anymore? And she's like, yeah, motherfucker. And then they won't be poor no more <laughs> you know and so they did a test and they took like people well below the poverty line and they gave them like six months of coursework from harvard level professors in arts and philosophy and looked to see if that would actually transform their lives and uh, lo and behold you know what i mean <laughs> having the capacity for discourse and political negotiation is transformative, (laughs) having access to the canon and aesthetic consciousness turns out it matters, you know? Yeah, well, it's, you know, Hitler burns the paintings and, (laughs) you know, people get rid of the libraries. It's like age old. I had an argument with the uh, San Francisco Museum of a modern museum. They have Free Day, which is like, oh, the first Tuesday of the month is Free Day. And it's upsetting to me, you know, because I think they should have a sliding scale or let people in when yeah, they can't like afford. It's like prohibitive at most museums. Right, and that's yeah. what it was when we were there, and I was offended. They're like, well, we do Tuesday, and I'm like, you know how fucking lame that is to say? That's just for you and your friends, because who the fuck that needs a free day can pick the day off that they have? Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like a free day Tuesday? I don't know anyone who has a Tuesday yeah. off. Exactly. Or, or isn't going to be using it to do their laundry and grocery shop. You are insane. Totally. Yeah. You know, some family of four that's broke is going to be able to find, what, one or two days out of the year to bring their kids to a museum? Right. You know? And Such then, then a great like point. $25 yeah. a person, or even if 15 bucks to get in, but then they have the nice gold ticket where you can't get in to see Miro right. unless you want to give us another 10. Exactly. It's like, what the fuck is that? Well, Shane, man? you can volunteer and work for free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but right. that is, that's the, the alternative I've heard where they're like, well, you can volunteer for a day. And it's like, and it is. It's. I mean, you look at the. Uh, unless I'm nuts, aren't they government? Like, isn't the Art Institute Chicago yeah, like a public? Like, like in Seattle's the one. The one that we found where there is always like pay what you can. Yeah. Any day of the week, pay yeah. what you can, which is how it should be. Because I mean, what are they worried about? Someone's gonna. Someone's yeah. gonna come in and go. You know, I could pay five, but I'm gonna pay two. <laughs> right. You know, and if that that's a guy who needs, or that's the person who needs the museum the most, is the one that's gonna rip them off. It's right. like. You know, for us to see Miro, it was like forty six dollars each. Jeez, that's disgusting. It's terrible. Yeah. No, it wasn't Everyone Miro. It was Georgia Miro. O'Keefe. We didn't Miro do it. Though. Was right. We didn't go. Even more so. That's offensive. Yes. Yeah, right. Her stuff's free everywhere. Well, the fake exactly. we, we have one day off free is like such bullshit. I don't know who's who's listening to that, mm-hmm. but no one who could use that is there to even be able to fight. They mm-hmm. can't even. 
I remember having like a total tantrum about that in front of MoMA. No, it was the Whitney um, once, like causing a scene. But I paid it because I I could. I was you know cocktailing or whatever, and I had enough cash in my pocket. And I went and saw um, the Mark Rothko retrospective, and I mean it changed my life. Yeah. You know, it absolutely changed my life. And I just think about like, what would it be like? If I hadn't had access to that, if I had no idea, it was like that's like a total portal for me. Right. Art has Art. saved my life. Right. It I'm saved. Saying, yeah. I, it's definitely saved mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but I mean, how do we? How do we? Like the museum thing is is a crime. Uh, the education system and, and and them discouraging creativity. So what? What do we do? What do people do to f- help that? You continue to do. Start you do and you show the person next to you that, that you do and then maybe they do. I don't know for the art museum thing you write a letter to the editor and try to get people to be shamed, shame them. They should I did through Twitter. I started shaming them and, and then they stopped responding to San Francisco Museum. But it's up in their Twitter feed or whatever. I mean they should be shamed of that. Museums and schools are both for the most part state institutions. I mean you know museums are often privately funded or they're through foundations but they're still products of really large social institutions, right? And we've been encouraged to think that that's where the only really big meaning can come from, right? That a a thing only has value if it's deeply expensive or difficult to access, right? You know, but there are plenty of ways in which people can create art together and make that meaning for each other without it having to cost, you know, without it being prohibitive in any way. You know, I think that's where the zine movement came from, was the idea that we wanted yeah. to be able to share ideas with each other, and we could steal photocopies from our jobs, or, at, you know, at Kikos yeah. or something, you know what I mean? And that we could share that, and it produced its own <laughs> kind of economy, right? We trade them. Mm. We often don't buy them. We right. just share them. It's like, you give me one, and I give you one, and, like, we just did that with that's our books. Even though they're glossy, this is basically like a giant zine exchange, you know? That's and right. so, I mean, I think that there is a real precedent for people creating art that is meaningful for themselves and not being beholden either to a particular kind of degree to tell them that they were yeah, valuable yeah, as yeah. artists and not being, you know, beholden to a particular kind of market that tells them either that their work is good or that only a particular kind of person can view it or own it or have it in their homes, you know? I mean, there's this really great thing that happens in Portland where people have, uh, like, these they're called cheap art shows where they make, like, 50 paintings and rather than charging $3,000 for one of them, which I'm sure they could get, you know, and that would be fine. Instead, they charge $50 and they sell every single fucking one of them and it goes to the home of someone that they know and love and then people get to go home and own beautiful art of somebody that they care about, right? And so the artist is able to have a livelihood and people are able to own things that have meaning for them. Yeah. I you know, love that. Exactly. Yeah, that's really See, great. that's what we're talking about that um, art, uh, underground art or street art, for me, is the only real art left. Everything else is bar- bar- part of an industry. Mm-hmm. And it, it has no, it's not nothing about um, expression or uh, curiosity. It's about this is what sells, this is what goes over the couch. Galleries are part of an art industry, museums, art schools, it's all some big industry. And it loses track of what the real, t- documenting, telling the story of your neighborhood just by through, through right. a painting or a photograph. It loses, it loses all that stuff, usually. I mean, some exceptions to the rules, of course, but. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying that I think that there are ways that people can share in creative process. That we, it's something that can be encouraged together. Right. We don't have to. We don't have to rely on large institutions to yeah. rubber stamp it before we can create it. It's funny how much we, you know, and I've done it time and time again. Where I buy into the you know, like mm-hmm. we, we've been tricked into thinking like, well, if they go, you're good. Then I've like the phrase that drives me nuts most that I hear is like, oh well, he made it. It's like made what? Yeah. Like yeah. what? What did he make? <laughs> Like it, that yeah. phrase drives me nuts because yeah. oh it's like oh so his creativity but anything before that yes. was pure shit yes. but he made it exactly because why because yeah. NBC went or RCA or oh, somebody yeah. or you know well I mean even like in a different sense in the publishing industry you hear people with their breakout novel or their first book it's like you know what 
that's probably that person's eighth book. Right. And they have been writing for 25 yeah, right. years. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, they got an agent, and that agent finally sold it. You know, right. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that they're a brand new writer. Right. It doesn't mean that this is their first attempt. Yeah. It was like, you know, I, I respect that, too, right. by the way. I've seen that with a lot of bands, just because yeah. my friends work for a lot of bands or in bands around L.A. Some band, one best new artist. And I was like, really? That's weird, because nope. I've watched them for 10 <laughs> fucking years. Yeah, right, exactly. And I've bought, like, EPs they've made Same in their fucking uh, basement. Yeah, like, yeah. I was like, but they're a new band, huh? Yeah. At 37. <laughs> exactly. Just picked up those guitars two months ago. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's magic. But it's, yeah, it's, and it's, you know, it's it's weird. It's hard to break for, for a lot of us. And I definitely, you know, get caught up in that game of, ugh. Well, I mean, that's not by accident, right? I mean, we live in a capitalist system, and we have to be able to pay for things. We yeah. have to be able to pay rent. If you want stability, maybe you want to own a house. You have to be able to have insurance to pay for health care. I mean, like, it's not by accident that we feel pressure to make money off of our work. We you need know? Art I mean, Amway. Art Amway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shoot me first. I mean, the thing about artists, it's kind of like teachers, too. It's assumed that we have enough passion that we will do it without getting paid and hold another job on top of it, right? right. Oh, if you really care, then, you know, you'll wait tables or you'll yeah. be a plumber or a janitor or whatever, and you'll make your art in the only free time that you have. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please visit thematdwyer.com. Um, see the photos. Go to queenofpirates.net. See more of Lara's work, her writing. Drink it in like a hot cup of tea in a winter night. And uh, go to my page, Conversations with Matt Dwyer page at Feral Audio, and use that Amazon link. Go to the website, thematdwyer.com. Follow me. Thank you very much for listening. security agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.